Craft Beer Radio presents Savor, an American craft beer and food experience. Private tasting salon number five, rare barrel-aged beers. Featuring Doug O'Dell, founder of O'Dell Brewing Company, and Patrick Rue, CEO and founder of the brewery. All right, thanks everybody for coming. Uh, my name is Paul Gatza. I'm director of the Brewers Association. We're the group that puts this on. Um, we represent all the craft brewers in uh, America. Uh, the Brewers Association is a trade group based in Boulder, Colorado. And we, we're just trying to elevate the image of beer here and do something really nice and different with beer and food. And um, uh, so I hope you've been having a good time so far. Uh, this is a private tasting. Uh, the topic of this one is rare barrel-aged beers, so this should be a lot of fun and some real complex and interesting flavors. Uh, we have with us today uh, Patrick Rue, CEO and founder of The Brewery, uh, which is a Belgian-style and Amer- experimental craft brewery in Orange County, California. And uh, he pretty much is in the beer business to avoid being a lawyer. He went through law school, and he's just kind of putting that off because he's having so much fun and... We're all lucky because he makes some really great beers. Um, uh, On this side is Doug O'Dell. Uh, Doug is the founder of O'Dell Brewing Company, which he started with his wife, Wynn, and uh, his sister, Corky. Uh, Doug started homebrewing in 1975. Was that legal then? (laughs) Uh, Is the statute of limitations up? uh, the uh, Odell Brewing started in 1989, uh, so uh, the, the brewery is approaching its 21st birthday and can have its first drink soon when it becomes legal. And uh, it's a regional brewery committed to innovation, co-worker involvement, uh, and, as well as community involvement and sustainability. So uh, without further ado, I give you Patrick Rue and Doug Odell. I think uh, we'll start out by um, maybe giving a little history about our, our brewery. I, I've got a little more um, more history than, than Patrick, but he's going on his way. Uh, we had a beer together last night. Tell the Rouge. Talk yeah. about um, okay. his first beer. Compared, compared, compared to our first beer. Can everybody hear me without using the, uh, the mic? Okay. And um, we're so far we were on pretty much of a um, of a even growth track as far as how many beer, uh, barrels we brewed the first year, second year, but what, what a difference 20 years makes because um, in 1989, our challenge was to uh, let people know what craft beer was and why they should have something other than Michelob or Michelob Dark. And, uh, and so, oh, you are? Oh, yeah, that's uh, Craft Beer Radio, so you can listen to this after the fact as well. And so, uh, Doug, no cursing. <laughs> Test. Um, oh, okay. Uh, so um, we were making beers in 1989 that were certainly a departure from uh, the mainstream beers. And uh, now some of the beers that we serve uh, that we've been selling since 1989 are 90 Shilling, Easy Street Wheat. Uh, now they're the mainstream beers, and Patrick is making the innovative stuff. So uh, uh, that's how things change. I mean, this is a quickly evolving uh, industry, and Somebody, uh, I'm sure we both feel we're very fortunate to be a part of it. And thank you all for coming. Are you um, looking for something? You're going to help celebrate a little bit in our, uh, in our uh, paths on innovation. 
because uh, recently Odell Brewery Company has um, moved into some barrel aging and using some um, fermentation and uh, and souring bacteria, uh, fermentation yeast and souring bacteria that uh, are not your typical uh, ale and lager yeasts. And so we'll start out with um, with our saboteur. And what this is, and, and uh, we're going we're gonna to ch- uh, pair it with uh, Muco Colo Rouge. And Muco is a uh, cheesery in Fort Collins. So we, you've got two Fort Collins products right here. And I, I just think that... Um, kind of the, the smoothness and velvety um, nature, creamy nature of the muco cheese goes really nicely with the um, saboteur. So the, uh, what the saboteur is, is it's a, um, starts out being a, what we'd call a double brown ale, I guess. It's about 10% uh, alcohol by volume. We use our standard uh, house lager yeast to ferment this in stainless steel, and then we age it for a little bit, uh, let the yeast settle out a little bit in the stainless, and then we transfer it to uh, once-used American oak barrels that was previously used for the woodcut, which I'll talk about earlier. And at that time, we had uh, Britannomyces yeast strain. Now, it's not your traditional ale yeast strain. Uh, Britannomyces is... Uh, well, we call it the nemesis of the of the vintner, because vintners uh, do everything they can to get that yeast out of their winery and out of their barrels. And uh, actually, at a, uh, a separate time, I was making uh, a beer that we were going to age in in Merlot barrels, and so I called this uh, vintner friend of mine and asked for some barrels. And then I said, "You're not going to believe this, but..." When we get the barrels, we're going to fill it with beer and, and then dose it with Britannomyces. And he said, don't send them back. <laughs> he said, I've worked a long time to get that stuff out of my winery. So, um, But uh, under controlled usage and in the right areas, Britannomyces can do very interesting things for beer. Um, so a secondary fermentation means that after most of the sugar has been fermented out by our ale yeast... Uh, the secondary fermentation will continue to ferment a little sugar that the ale yeast couldn't get to. It was unfermentable uh, to the ale yeast, but the Britannomyces has a little wider range of what it can ferment. And so it, it dropped a little bit more in sugar content, and that, that's where we got the, the Britannomyces characteristics. Now, this beer is going to be a little more subtle in its characteristics compared to on 100, 100% Britannomyces beer. And um, we've actually done one of those, but they're in the barrels right now, so I can't really speak about it, but I'm sure Patrick can uh, perhaps um, uh, his experiences with 100% Britannomyces fermentation. So after it's in the barrel, we send it into our barrel room. It's a controlled room, controlled temperature room, uh, about 70 degrees, so winter, summer where it can range anywhere from minus 25 outside to 100 in Fort Collins. Um, We go through another four-month aging period and secondary fermentation in the wood barrels. And when we get to the the woodcut three here, which is different, by the way, than what we are tasting downstairs if you came by our booth, uh, we're tasting woodcut four. This one is woodcut three, its predecessor. Um, We uh, do still get some... Some flavor characteristics out of the wood, not as, uh, as intense as the um, first use on the woodcut. So what I get out of this is, um, first of all, 
a fruity malty, a little bit of roasty characteristic in the in the aroma. Um, by the way, these are great glasses that we have here tonight and downstairs because they concentrate the aroma coming off the um, surface of the beer because it kind of funnels it into your into your um, into your nose there. And a good way to to uh, really experience it is give it a little shake so you break out some of that CO2. And with the CO2 coming out of solution comes the um, some of the volatile flavors. So I get uh, Britannomyces. There are some traditional characteristics, um, some fruitiness. Uh, in this case, I, I find pineapple in here, but I always um, uh, ask anybody who I'm talking to in a tasting to just shout out um, whatever your first impression was on the aroma. What, what, what other uh, food or fruit or vegetable or, or uh, anything that you, you think of when you smell this beer? So anybody wants to speak up at any time, that's great. Raisin? Okay. Honey and... Leather, yeah, I was getting to leather. You know, that's leather is actually a um, a pretty characteristic trait of Brentanomyces. Um, sometimes, uh, especially with 100% fermentation, that can really intensify where people can start talking about it as as having horse blanket or barnyard characteristics. And I mean, some of these kind of sound disgusting about how you and manure. I mean, I've heard that, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, but uh, in many, many beers, the, these flavors all blend together, typically in stronger beers that have a good malt base so that they all come together um, in, a, uh, in a kind of a concert of, uh, of uh, complexity. Now, the, uh, the taste. Anybody have any uh, first impressions? Caramel? Okay, yeah, I can get that. That I think that probably comes um, at least initially from the crystal caramel malt we use, um, plus the roasted uh, chocolate malt. Um, fig, okay. So, uh, and you mentioned raisin over here. So, um, would you say fresh figs or fig newtons? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, in stronger beers of almost any kind, uh, dried fruit is not an uncommon characteristic. Um, uh, I hear raisins a lot, dried apricots, dried cherries. And so that's, um, that's not at all unusual. Now, one of the things that Britannomyces will do to a beer is sour it. And the, the more oxygen that you expose the beer to while it's undergoing Britannomyces fermentation, the, the more sour it will get. Um, the more sour compounds, the more acetic acid, a little bit more that contributes to a sour impression. Uh, whereas these, these barrels were full to the, filled to the brim. Uh, they were purged with oxygen before we uh, filled them and then bunged up and just held there for four months. And so it uh, got a little bit of oxygen content, which uh, can contribute to that dried fruit character that you thought of. And it also adds a, a, a bit of a tartness, sourness. So the way I describe this beer is kind of a fruity, leathery tobacco, in some cases, um, aroma. And you get a nice kind of burst of, of uh, dried fruit and maltiness uh, finished up with a, a tartness. So instead of a traditional beer where 
your balance comes from the sweetness of the malt and the bitterness of the hops. In, uh, it, in the first two beers here, your balance will come from the sweetness of the malt and the sourness of the beer. And wherever that it come, it can come from different um, different types of yeast and bacteria. Uh, in our case, this is just ale yeast and Brettanomyces. Yes. Kind of fatty. As soon as I had a bite of this fattier, stinky cheese, yeah, the um, the tartness from the beer really kind of disappeared. It was almost a little bit sad, but um, it was a uh, you know. Do you think it was uh, too much of a fatty cheese that it yeah, took away from the flavor? Yeah, I don't know much about the science behind it, but I wonder if you do, if either of you guys know more about it. If you know something about either either the the stinkiness of the cheese or just like the fat in the dairy that. Um, sort of negates some of the sourness of the beer? Uh, no, I'm afraid I can't answer that. And the reason I went with this pairing is because we tried it about a month ago at our brewery and people were raving about it. So, uh, <laughs> But everybody has their own impression. Uh, you know, I, I know that, um, that fat has the ability to, to, um, to uh, cut certain flavor compounds. And uh, maybe in this case it does cut the sourness a little bit. Uh, you got anything to say about this, Patrick? Yeah, you know, fat kind of sticks to your tongue and, um, you know, covers covers your taste buds. So I think it will cover that up. But um, I think when you try it with the next beer, Utart, um, you'll find maybe um, it cuts down the sourness in maybe a pleasant way to allow you to taste more of the, the complexity of uh, what's going on rather than just pure, pure sourness hitting your tongue. But I think for, like... I don't know. When you try brie and red wine, you know, it's it definitely uh, the brie will, like, soften the tannins. And I think it does a similar thing. Uh, this isn't brie, but, you know, fattier cheeses are going to um, help meld the flavors of the of the cheese and, uh, and the beer and, um, you know, help, uh, I don't know, help the cheese maybe not be so cloying or fatty. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a justifiable concern of any brewer. And the way we deal with it is that we have a separate set of transfer hoses, fittings, kegs that we put this beer in uh, that we reserve only for what we call wild beers, uh, either Britannomyces or if we've got Lactobacillus or Pediococcus in a beer. Um, we isolate that equipment. And so that's one way. Um, although we do use um, the same bottling line to bo- bottle both of these. Um, so we're counting on, um, on long contact of, of very hot water, so hot sterilization. But it is definitely a concern. Um, and so we, we also take care not to, uh, to do any transfers uh, within the brewery that are going to risk any spills. If we're, we're transferring out of barrels uh, where you typically do get some spills, then we'll, uh, we'll take it back into the warehouse and keep it away from our fermentation room. Now, uh, a little bit about the oak uh, contribution to this beer. The, uh, I think you mentioned caramel, and uh, 
oftentimes I can get some caramel and toffee out of out of the oak, uh, the new oak barrels. And so when you get to uh, our woodcut, I think you'll see some of those characteristics. Well, one of the other things that really comes out of those barrels is vanilla, uh, but I don't necessarily pick that up in this beer. But there is a bit of woodiness. But uh, my experience is that. Woodiness, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it could have come from the barrel, and maybe part of it did. But you can get some woodiness from Britannomyces, too. Uh, Patrick, can you tell us about beer number two? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll talk about the beer first, and then I'll, I'll talk about myself, uh, if that's okay. Uh, so Udtart is a Flemish red. Um, it's a 6.5% alcohol. We... This is actually our fifth batch and our 35th batch blended together. So we take uh, old beer and, uh, or older beer and then old beer and blend them. Uh, they, it uh, sat in uh, neutral uh, Cabernet Sauvignon barrels for, um, you know, 15 or 10 months for uh, the later batch and 15 months for the, uh, for the first batch. Uh, so really early on in our, in our existence, we wanted to make a beer like this and it just takes a while to, for these sort of beers to develop. Um, so we, 100% of the fermentation is done with, uh, funk. Um, so we use, uh, Britannomyces as, uh, as the yeast that's gonna, you know, gonna generate the alcohol. Um, and we use bacteria like, uh, lactobacillus and pediococcus that really contribute to the sourness. Um, you know, they're basically bacteria that, uh, instead of fermenting sugar to create, um, to create alcohol, they're creating they're from sugar to uh, acid. So lactobacillus creates uh, lactic acid. Um, also, Acetobacter finds its way in there. We don't add it intentionally, but um, in any sort of uh, process dealing with wood that hasn't been completely sterilized, you'll end up getting some um, Acetobacter, which um, actually, it's kind of weird. It takes alcohol and it creates acetic acid, which is you know, vinegar. So you don't want it to go too far. It's a little bit as uh, pleasant, but um, actually, if you try a Rodenbach, a um, lot of the lot of the sourness comes from acetic acid, which some people love and some people hate. I don't know. I like I like any anything sour. So, um, so this this beer we just released at our brewery. Um, we have this great club, the the Reserve Society, and we're able to make these really small releases that you know might mean. Might mean that we're sending you know three cases to each state. That would just be that would just anger people. So we don't do that. We release it all within our brewery. Um, so yeah, really really fun to make these beers. Um, yeah, as Doug was talking about before, I'm very new to the business. We're just celebrating our second anniversary uh, last month. Uh, thank you. <laughs> we um, yeah, I started as a home brewer um, in my first year of law school. My wife. I was talking to her about, you know, the assholes I go to school with. Oh, excuse me. No, Cassie. <laughs> you know, and just... There's lawyers here first. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, just, yeah, I would, I would just, you know, ramble on about, about my day and how horrible school is and how much I hate it. And she's like, you need a hobby. You need something else to tell me at the end of the day um, where you can just make up another story and, you know, you have to tell me the truth. Um, so she uh, had a friend in college that homebrewed, and I thought it was a really cool hobby. So I started doing that, and uh, after a little while, I started homebrewing two batches, three batches a week. Um, I, I studied while I hovered over my my, my uh, brew kettle, and uh, you know, fed all the beer to my friends on the weekends or the, the students that that liked to party with me. Um, and 
you know, brewed maybe 150 batches in those three years. Just had a lot of fun. Um, and once I graduated, uh, so I have a good good story. My second year of law school, uh, my mom, who uh, was at Betty Ford, you know, in AA, um, she's like, I, was, I, was, I told her, I think I'm going to drop out of law school. Um, I, I really hate this. She's like, oh, what are you going to do? I, I want to be a brewer. I want to want to make beer for a living. <laughs> she's like. No, no, no. You finished law school. Like, I'm not talking to you again if you don't finish law school. So I did. Uh, anyway, really enjoy, really enjoy uh, running a brewery and dealing with people in the beer industry. It's uh, such a fun, fun industry to be in. And it's a lot of hard work, uh, very multiple, multiple disciplinary. I don't know. We do a lot of things that sometimes aren't all that related to each other. But, you know, you're a businessman, a scientist, and um, get to do a lot of fun things. Um, so, anybody have any questions about Oud Tart or, or anything else? I guess I just have a question about your brewery. You're yeah. You're two years old. You're, you're two years old, and I, I live in New York. I come down here. You're everywhere. Um, other than the obvious, you know, you make good beer. What, what kind of process did you go through to ramp up so quickly? Um, we're, we're a pretty small brewery. We did... Uh, 1,800 um, barrels last year, which is maybe like 25,000 cases, so not that much beer. Uh, we're doing about 3,000 this year, 3,000 barrels. Um, basically, in the first six months uh, was the deciding point where whether we were going to be a regional, you know, small local brewery or we were going to be a small brewery that distributes far and wide. And I had looked at what Belgian breweries were doing or even, you know, small wineries, and these are, you know, small, small production but really large distribution. So we wanted to continue making really specialty beers, and um, we didn't want to have to make a flagship or you know something that we, we make a whole lot of to uh, to survive and just being in Southern California. So we quickly branched out to 21 states um, plus DC, and um, yeah, it's um, allows me to travel, and uh, we we just found up following all over the U.S. and really all over the world for our beers. But not by uh, not by a huge audience, by a real, you know, by people who love really interesting beers, and um, they don't mind uh, spending a little bit more for their for their beer and supporting us. Yeah, you deal with so many, you know, potentially hazardous, uh, you know, bacteria and yeasts, you know, ones that you don't necessarily want in all of your beers. Um, I was wondering if you tell us a bit more about your um, your, your brewery setup. Sure, and then, and then also quick side question like what what gives this beer the red color um so the first question what was the first question sorry <laughs> do, you, do you separate your oh yeah separation practices um yeah we uh we have one fermenter that we use for all of our sour beers um so we pretty much uh, in order to get rid of the the bacteria and the wild yeast we have to really scrub it down and steam sterilize the whole fermenter so we just choose to you know clean it the normal way and just put another sour beer in there and um, we have a separate bottling line wouldn't call it a line really it's a it's a gravity wine filler we fill you know six bottles at a time all by hand and then a hand capper and it's uh tedious and my brewers hate me for making them use it but uh, on our other bottling line it would a lot of our beers would come out uh, having some sourness to them unintentionally. Um, as Doug said, we use separate valves, hoses, and gaskets, anything that's permeable to, uh, to bacteria. Um, we actually use Brett in our, uh, um, pretty freely. Um, 
we find it's fairly easy to kill, so we use that on our normal uh, bottling line, and um, we don't we don't worry about um, separating out brett. Um, but we definitely do a lot of uh, plating of our beers and plating of all of our hoses and stuff just to to make sure nothing is is growing. Um, so at least when we do release one of these beers, we know a few weeks ahead of actually releasing it, and we haven't had to destroy any beer because of it. Luckily, how many bread strains do you have in house? Uh, we have uh, three or four. Uh, we have four different strains. One of them is a Phantom derived. I'm not even, you know, it tastes different than, uh, than Anomalous, but I would say it's probably mostly closely linked to that, giving a lot of pineapple and not so much the medicinal characteristics, but uh, Brucellensis, Lambicus, uh, Anomalous, and then that, that Phantom strain. And then uh, if one strain of Lactobacillus and one strain of uh, Pediococcus. And uh, the um, yeah, we get the acetobacter on zone, so we don't we don't worry about that one. <laughs> Try to avoid it, actually. Uh, did you find that your uh, law degree helped you with kind of the myriad regulations and stuff you had to go through, at least setting up or getting into the many states that you're in right now? Um, yeah, uh, graduating law school helped, taught me how to research something. You know, I didn't learn anything about um, alcohol law or you know, distribution or anything like that in law school, but you kind of know where to look and, you know, that you have to deal with your, your city, your county, your state, um, you know, fe- and then federal government, and then, yeah, the many, many different organizations you, you kind of have to think about, you know, we're producing an agricultural product, so, you know, the California Department of Agriculture wants a tax from me, so I guess I better check into that, or, you know, Department of Conservation wants us to, you know, give them money for using glass bottles, okay, you know. Some of these things that, you know, you might not learn until 10 years down the road. Uh, we learned early on to, to pay our taxes and file our reports properly. All right. Uh, so, Doug, tell us about the Woodcut series and the beer we have in our glass right now. All right. Um, everybody have Woodcut out there? Okay, the Woodcut series um, was conceived uh, with the intention of brewing different styles of beer um, in a uh, higher alcohol content level, um, 10 to 11% is the range that, that we've done with our four woodcuts so far. It's very limited. We make about 500 cases of, of each batch. Um, and the idea in the beginning was to always age the beers in brand new virgin American oak barrels. And we source those out of Kentucky. And typically uh, that the, the, the wood that's, the oak wood that's used in barrel making in Kentucky is usually grown in Missouri, but it's pretty close. So, um, And so our inspiration was, um, anybody heard of uh, Hair of the Dog up in Portland, Oregon? Yeah, I, I would think anybody who's in this room has probably heard of them. Um, we took a trip out there and we tasted one of his uh, beers that he was aging in in a, in a brand new oak barrel, and, and it was just something we'd never really tried. I mean, never had anything like it before, and so we wanted to expand on that and put our own stamp on it. And so this is the result. Uh, Woodcut three is a we call it a crimson ale. So I suppose you, if you were to look at the recipe sheet. Uh, it, it might look like a, a really strong Irish red 
ale. And we did, once again, we used our, uh, our ale yeast, house ale yeast, but nothing else, just that. And then uh, after fermentation and a bit of aging in stainless steel, we then uh, transferred the beer into brand new, brand new oak barrels and uh, aged it for about six months. Now, the characteristics that I see coming out of this beer are the characteristics of, of the base beer itself. So some caramel and toffee characteristic from the darker crystal and the Munich darker Munich malt that we used in the base. And then also from the wood, um, well, maybe I shouldn't lead you on. Anybody have some uh, any initial impressions? Yes. A little different than what you had available downstairs, correct? Yes, downstairs is a double Martin. We used our lager yeast. This is an ale. I noticed that both of them really taste like fresh green wood, obviously. Now I know why. Did you do anything with the hopping to accentuate that, or is it just a result of the fresh barrel? We have typically kept the hopping fairly low. Uh, the bitterness on this is about 40 IBUs, but there's a fair amount of residual sugar in there, so it, it doesn't show 40 like a, like a 5% beer would. So, um, and then there's some finishing hops as well, uh, but that's not, we didn't want to accent the beer with the hops. Um, whereas Woodcut 5, uh, we are trying that, but I can't talk about that yet. <laughs> uh, so, I would say the, you know, the hops make a difference because they're there, uh, but I wouldn't say we're trying to showcase them. But uh, typically what I see out of um, coming out of brand new oak barrels, and these, these are medium toast, by the way. You can get light toast, medium toast, medium plus toast, and heavy toast. And that just depends on how long that the barrel is fired at the cooper uh, before it's, it's sealed up and sent to the, to the customer. So we found that medium gives us the, the flavor characteristics and the tannin level that we like. Uh, so when you stick your nose in a brand new barrel, you definitely smell oak, smell a little vanilla, you smell some um, uh, nuttiness in there, uh, a little bit of char. I think somebody mentioned smoke a little bit over here. I think that's a, it's there, it's a minor. But when, once, once you taste the beer out of these barrels, the vanilla really comes out, uh, the nuttiness, maybe some almond character uh, in after about two months, there was definitely some coconut character in there, but I think that's kind of diminished, but it's still there. Um, I mean, it depends on your threshold of coconut uh, perception. And, and then, uh, but anything that you're tasting in here has come from malt, oak barrel, hops, or yeast. You know, there's nothing else in here. So it's, it's amazing with the, um, I mean, what different malt ingredients and different treatments of beer and aging of beer can do for flavor characteristics. I mean, they, they really become distinctive and complex over time, some of these stronger beers. Yes? The fresh wood really gives it a, a, a different, uh, different connotation you get from, like, the typical uh, charred uh, wood. That you, so, I mean, you get, like, this almost sappy kind of resinous sort of flavor with it. Uh, you, you mentioned hair of the dog. I was wondering if that, uh, if that beer you, uh, you, you got the idea from was Fred from the Wood. I'm sorry. I just realized that um, uh, neither Patrick nor I had even tasted this yet. So uh, here, I, here I am talking from memory. 
Uh, what was the gist of your question? I'm sorry. Uh, I, was, I was just pointing out that you know I just think that the, the fresh wood really comes through, and uh, it's uh, really interesting. And 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 that you mentioned hair of the dog, and I was wondering if. Um, if that was Fred from the Wood that you're referring to. Fred from the Wood, yes, that's what it is. Do you see any similarities to it? Uh, just from the, the Wood character, definitely. Uh, but I mean, Fred is more, uh, mine's more of an Irish barley wine, and this is uh, definitely more, like you said, sort of an Irish, but a heavy Irish red. Uh huh. You know, I definitely get some hops out of here, too. We, it's not that we didn't put any in the finishing, um, but it just kind of blends with the. Uh, everything else in the beer. And um, to give you an idea of the little contrast between uh, the brewery and Odell Brewing Company, um, we're, we're definitely uh, have a flagship brand, or 90 Shilling, and uh, we're um, probably going to brew about 50,000 barrels this year. Uh, we're in nine states, and so we consider ourselves a, a western regional brewery of uh, one of the questions I had to answer over and over again downstairs is, when will you be in D.C.? Well, it's not on the plan right now. Sorry. So we'll just keep coming here, and you can try our beer here. Anything else? Yeah. yeah uh, what are the standard uses for virgin oak? Pardon me? What are the standard, what are the most common uses for virgin oak? Uh, wine barrels, primarily. Um, and then uh, whiskey barrels as well, but that's not toasted. Those, those are charred. And so that means that it's, it's it burned even more, and so the caramelization uh, of the sugars occur to an even a, uh, a greater extent. And so, you know, the characteristics you get out of bourbon whiskey, uh, vanilla primarily, um, I mean, others that, that come out over time. Uh, and actually, this one, uh, Patrick's uh, last beer here, is aged in bourbon barrels, so uh, we can both talk about that a little bit, too, because we just finished a trip to Kentucky. If you read our uh, blog on our website, we got a little description of it about choosing barrels for our, wood, uh, our bourbon barrel stout. It was a fun trip. It was hard, drinking all that bourbon. <laughs> and, and I was also curious, um, I, this is the first beer, or your, your beers are the first I've ever had age in virgin oak as opposed to bourbon or wine barrels. Is that co- more common in the Midwest because you're near Missouri? Is that, I, I'd never seen that before. Oh, well, we're, in, we're in Colorado. The wood came from Missouri. No, near, near Missouri. Not I, I have to say that there's only two. I mean, I'm sure there's more that are dabbling in it. Um, but there's only two breweries that I have seen other, other than ourselves. Uh, excuse me if you've tried it, but... Um, and that's the uh, Springfield Brewing Company in uh, Springfield, Missouri, and then Hair of the Dog. Uh, anybody familiar with any others that are using brand new oak barrels? Uh, Firestone Walker. Well, they use the uh, Union system, right? Is that right. what you're referring to? Yeah, so they're new, medium toast. Yeah. Okay. I think Is it done that way? Okay. You know, I, I think that the characteristics that come out of what these barrels contribute. Is uh, is very distinctive, and I think it's pleasant enough that that I think you'll see more, more and more. And we're still experimenting with um, what difference does it make? What the difference is when we put different kinds of of beer in the same type of barrel? Um, because it is the barrel contributing in its natural characteristics to the beer, unlike using white wine or red wine or port or, or bourbon barrels in that a lot of the characteristics come out of the beverage that was in there previously. 
So, Doug, you mentioned that you were tasting a bunch of whiskeys and looking at the barrels. What kind of attributes are you looking at for the, the whiskeys slash barrels to use in your beers? Mostly we wanted to find a characteristic of the whiskey, either the taste or the aroma, that we wanted in our beer. And there's, if you, we found a barrel broker out there that buys barrels from a lot of different distilleries. And there's not that many in Kentucky, I think just eight or ten distilleries. But all the brands that come out of there um, are just come out of eight or ten distilleries. Although Maker's Mark only makes one whiskey and it's Maker's. Uh, whereas um, Heaven Hill di- Distillery makes about 50 of them, 50 labels. Um, but anyway, by going to this barrel broker, we were able to spend about an hour and a half going around and just sniffing every different kind of bourbon barrel that the guy had. And we definitely had our, our favorites. Um, uh, Makers was probably one of our most favorites, and that, that's what we ended up buying for, uh, for our next uh, bourbon barrel stout. Uh, but I can tell you what stands out more is the ones that we didn't care for, and that was Wild Turkey and Jim Beam. I can, those were just hot and astringent and unpleasant. Whereas what, what we were looking for was a nice vanilla character, character a real nice smoothness, uh, a little bit of uh, nutty and fruity character. And so the two that, that we found that really, really were what we were looking for were Woodford Reserve and Makers. Uh, so those two, you know, those two are, you know, they're $30, $25, $30 bottles, uh, 750 mil. So they're not the most expensive, but they sure are smooth and, and very distinctive flavors. Uh, that would be up to an agreement we might be able to make with Maker's Mark. Um, the first batch that we made, we used Buffalo Trace barrels, and they didn't want us to do that. And frankly, I don't, I don't blame them. The, the question was, are we allowed to legally advertise that we use Maker's Mark barrels? And I don't blame them, because what if our beer was really shitty? <laughs> and and it'd, go, it'd come back to Buffalo Trace saying, this really bad beer is coming out of your barrels. <laughs> So, um, but they're they're okay selling them to us, and unfortunately they used to be free, but now all craft brewers want them, so there's a value to them. And a lot of those barrels, it's even hard for craft brewers to get them, so a lot of them end up going to uh, Scotch makers and uh, you know, uh, right, tequila and rum and. You know, everybody else has a use for them too. Um, the reason we don't use uh, virgin oak barrels, uh, quite honestly, is they're expensive. Uh, I don't know if you can talk about how much you pay for them, but I would guess it's three to four times what you pay, maybe four to five times what you pay for a bourbon barrel. Uh, four and a half times. Four and a half times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. It's a, uh, yeah, I can tell you that. <laughs> the the latest um, price we paid for Maker's barrels was ninety five dollars plus shipping. And a brand new oak barrel, and the size we use is about four hundred and forty dollars. Uh, the size? Well, um, they come in different sizes. The size we use is um, about sixty-nine gallons, and bourbon barrels are always fifty-three gallons. I don't know why. That's just a standard standard size. Hey, can our volunteers make sure the uh, two guys up front get a pour of this? <laughs> what do we have here, Patrick? 
so this beer is uh, Black Tuesday. It's our Imperial Stout that we released last October. Uh, it was, we had to release it on a Tuesday, but the, uh, gosh, was it like the 80th anniversary of, the, of Black Tuesday um, when the, when the uh, economy went to crap uh, a long time ago? Uh, so we released it on, the, it was basically two days before that commemoration date because we, you know, can't, can't release a beer called Black Tuesday on Thursday. Um, anyway, it's a 19.5% um, Russian Imperial, or I just call it an Imperial stat. We'll keep the Russian part out of there. Um, it uh, is aged in bourbon barrels for about 16 months. It was, I believe, our seventh batch and our eh, maybe 40th batch of beer. Um, and started out as we, um, before, I, before we opened up, I had a, had a whole year of construction and it's trying to, trying to get open. And I bought a pallet of assorted malt. So I had a few different organic malts and all these different uh, caramel malts, chocolate malts, you know, sort of nothing that was quite really usable. Cause after I, I brewed with them once, uh, you know, there's 44 pounds left in the bag and, um, you know, what to do with it. So I said, let's make a big ass imperial stout and, you know, See see what happens. So uh, we got to brew this thing first. First, uh, you know the initial runnings are fine. Um, you know we, we get the we get the beer we want at a really high concentration of sugar, and then we got to make a second beer um, called Humulus Brew, and it's the second runnings of the beer. So we got two beers out of the same mash, and uh, at about four barrels of runoff, it, it sticks, um, and. The whole the mash tun is full. It, we have a, about a twenty barrel mash tun, has uh, three thousand pounds of grain in it, just filled to the brim. I mean, there's maybe half an inch of, of clearance left, and it sticks. And we we messed around that, with that for about five hours, and then I decided that we're just going to dump it. So, the bottom, the, our dump valve is on the bottom. Um, so we go open that up. We put a fifty five gallon trash can under it, and hopefully we can close it to you know clear everything out over. Probably have to do 20 bins, and you know each one weighs almost a thousand pounds. Um, so first, yeah, you know, the first bucket's fine. Second one's fine. Third one, we can't move the valve up. It's just gushing and gushing and going down my boots and all over my face and just like everywhere. I'm just trying to close this valve. I'm like taking a shower in 180 degree, like I don't know what looks like sewage, or bad sewage waste. Uh, it smells good though. Uh, and uh, anyway, after the whole thing emptied itself, we found out that uh, the mash paddle we were using got stuck in the um, got stuck in the valve, and we had a, the whole floor was you know just covered with crap. And it took us about ten hours to clean up, and I had like blisters on my hands. It was a horrible day. So, uh, did you brew that on Tuesday? Was that your Black Tuesday? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We did brew it on a Tuesday. I posted this on my blog just how frustrated I was with with brewing, and uh, it was a you know a day that you want to quit, kind of. Um, and someone, you know, I asked for re- name recomm- recommendations, and someone posted as a comment, "How about Black Tuesday?" So, I, I do a lot of stealing from our our good customers. So, thank you for so, your suggestions. I so listen. easy to replicate. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then the second batch, we were able to refine down to four different malts and get it pretty get it pretty close. So, so this year's batch is a. Uh, I think five different batches, and um, some are way strong, all the way up to about 24% alcohol. And then we have our what we call the fatty batches; they're around 15% alcohol and just massively sugary. So we're kind of blending those two around to come up with what this is. And what is the cheese that you have paired with this? 
So this is a Winchester Super Age Gouda. Winchester is located uh, right around Temecula, California, about um, about an hour from our brewery. Um, they call it a, an aged Gouda or Super Age Gouda. Um, all they make is Goudas, but they taste like cheddars to me because I think they're you know the cows have a pretty different diet than than you would find in um, in Holland. Um, uh, cheese I like a lot, and we don't. I think it's the only. Uh, only craft uh, creamery in in Southern California, so gotta gotta support them. Um, Northern California has a lot of great creameries, but we don't. So we got one here back here first. Yeah, Patrick, you mentioned you blended some beers together to make this, but you know, fermenting a beer to twenty four percent sounds sounds difficult. So, what kind of black magic do you use to get that beer to ferment? <laughs> um, well, we use our house yeast strain, and we use California ale strain. Um, we ferment at a fairly low temperature, about 65, 64 degrees. Um, we constantly oxygenate, so we put in the oxygen stone and just crack it as little as possible and take dissolved oxygen readings to make sure that the, the beer isn't becoming uh, oxidized. Um, and then we have our pump on it. It's like running Frankenstein or something. It's, it's uh, I don't know, it's kind of a disturbing process when we bring in other other brewers and you're like what the hell is that like you're screwing up your beer this is like everything they told you not to do that you're doing this is idiotic but um and we recirculate to keep the yeast in suspension um and then we feed it sugar daily so the the base beer has a you know is all malt um or the base wort you know before when it goes into the tank it's 100 percent malt and then we um start adding the sugar contributions so we use maple syrup and um and uh turbinado sugar and um feed it maybe 150 pounds a day for about five days um um, we usually only do 10 barrels of this beer versus like a normal batch of 15 barrels or 45. Or, you know, we, we do multiple batches to fill up a fermenter. So we do a very little amount of this because we recognize that there's a lot of risk to fermenting something this way, and it could easily taste like cardboard if we aren't careful. I wanted to add to that. Um, what one way that we found works really well if you um, if your yeast stalls out at a certain alcohol percentage, but there's still a lot of fermentable sugar left in there. To um, instead of uh, oxygenating the beer itself, we oxygenate more yeast and add add oxygenated yeast into the beer, and that kind of rejuvenates everything. And we feel that's a pretty low risk of. Uh, of adding dissolved oxygen to your beer and risking the cardboard characteristic. And I wanted to say one thing about uh, Patrick's um, uh, stuck mash. Uh, a stuck mash, for those of you who don't know, is that your your grain bed cl- uh, collapses and compresses so much that water can't percolate down through it anymore and, and leach out the sugars, which is what the sparge is all about. And uh, I've been to Patrick's Brewery, and they're uh, mashed on as a closed vessel, as I remember. And sometimes if your vessel is small enough, you can get in there with a canoe paddle and stir it back up and, and start clearing it out again with your circulation and, and keep going. Um, but not when your opening is this big and you've got 3,000 pounds of cement in there, and that's pretty much what it is. So uh, I thought that when you were talking about uh, graining out that you just said it got stuck in there and it wouldn't come out <laughs> because, it, I mean, it, it does get impermeable. So fortunately, that doesn't happen too much. Uh, yeah. Patrick, you're describing some, you know, you're talking about all the different sort of tricks and techniques you use to, to bump this up and to make this, this beer. You know, some of them sound, to me at least, sophisticated. I don't know. Uh, 
how much of this did you know like three, four years ago before you were a professional brewer, and where did you come across all this knowledge? Um, yeah, we didn't know very much uh, starting out. So, you know, we we have friends in the industry. Probably the biggest contribution for for this beer would be the um, Andrew and Bird over at um, Boston Beer Company, Sam Adams, who make Utopias. Um, so they use some of these techniques. Um, so they're really gracious to to let us uh, use some of that knowledge. Um, but yeah, we were doing a few of them, a few of those techni- techniques beforehand, and you know they helped us kind of refine it. Uh, we also add nutrients too during the during the fermentation. Whenever we add sugar, we add nutrients. Um, what, what does that mean? Um, we use uh, zinc, um, basically minerals and different compounds that help uh, yeast growth. So um, just make sure the yeast is very healthy. Um, so we typically have really high viability, about ninety-five or ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of the yeast that's you know in our vessel is alive during fermentation, and it's chugging away. And it only takes about five days to ferment uh, ferment this beer, and then it takes a lot longer before it actually tastes good. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell us what kind of uh, bourbon barrels you used? Um, yeah, we use uh, Elijah Craig bourbon barrels from Heaven Hill. Um, I, we don't really have a choice of bourbon barrels. We, we get them from a broker um, who lives in Wisconsin. He's kind of a crazy guy. He loves visiting breweries, and he, you know, gets a whole, you know, truckload of, you know, whatever, 300 barrels, and drives by our place in Lost Abbey, Ballast Point, um, Firestone Walker, you know, kind of. Right, right. We also use some rye barrels from them and uh, some brandy barrels from Christian Brothers. But uh, this this beer only has um, Elijah Craig bourbon barrels. So. Yes. So you have lactobacillus and bacillus. Yeah. Which one do you use? Not for this one. Okay. But no, just in the sour one, uh, in the oud tart. In the previous brew. Right. Where do you get those from? The like the stock strain. Um, our janitorial sink. Just kidding. Yeah, well, that's what I'm yeah. wondering. Is yeah. it your lab or is the ATCC um, or like... No, we get a pure culture from either Y-East or White Labs. Cool. Yeah, they keep all that, all that fun stuff and, um, yeah, they can grow a fairly large amount of it. Um, so we don't have to do all the work of growing up that, that bacteria. Yes. Can you talk at all about your um, collaboration project with Cigar City? How that's going? Due dates, names, something? Uh, sure. Um, we haven't come up with a name yet. We have a few few good ideas. Um, I'll tell you about the beer. It's a uh, Imperial Ode Bruins. It, you know, it's, a, it's a big uh, Flemish uh, brown ale. Um, we're, we're not disclosing the fruits yet, but we're using one California-based fruit and one Floridian fruit. And uh, it's, we brewed it in October, brewed a fair amount of it, so we'll get it to all of our distribution areas. Um, and uh, as far as names, I don't know. We, um, I think one was, uh, I want to say, it means uh, brown sour, but I think it's like Marona Cetafe or something like that, which is kind of fancy and nice. I like that. And then one was uh, ISOFT. I mean, like, is seeking out or for trade, kind of, we just see this as being a, a big trading beer on Beer Advocate, so we, 
I thought we'd nod, send a nod to uh, Beer Advocate and Rape Beer guys. Uh, when you had this on your website originally uh, last September, uh, you said summer. And so yeah. you have like a projection this month, next month, August, anything? I'm guessing October or November where, um, you know, sour, sour beers have their own time frame. We, you know, we taste it and that's when it's ready. Um, if it doesn't have the flavor components we want yet, you know, we just got to keep checking on it and... Um, we want to make sure that you know everybody's impressed by it. And so, Patrick, will that be through Here. your distribution route or through Star distribution route? Uh, it'll be through our distribution route. So we brewed at our brewery. So you get some errand. Yeah. Um, I think the white elephant in the room is the ridiculous cult following this beer has. And I just wanted to ask you a couple questions. One is I feel like super dark, high alcoholic sweet beers or imperial stouts like this um, definitely lend themselves to cult followings. And I was curious if there were any beers that inspired this. Um, And my second question is any interesting stories you have about the... um, I guess, the things that people have gone through to try to get the spear, because I definitely have heard a few. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, Russian imperial stats or imperial stats are, are big, especially for, um, you know, the, the beer geek crowd. I'm a beer geek, so I can call their beer geeks that. Um, sounds like a bad word. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know why imperial stats have such a... Uh, strong following to them. I guess they're very complex, um, ageable beers, and often, you know, high in alcohol. And a lot of them are limited production. Um, so I guess some of the beers that inspired this would be like Dark Lord, um, Firestone Walker, Parabola. There's so many great Imperial Stouts out there. Um, and what was your other question? Sorry. Any stories <laughs> um, I don't know. People pay three hundred dollars for it on eBay, which I think is kind of crazy. Hope none of no one in the room has done that. Um, and yeah, we charged thirty bucks for it, and I thought that was pretty crazy. But to make the beer and for the risk, I you know, and what Lost Abbey charges, I figured you know, let's uh, we're we're all in the we're all in the same game. Let's you know, it's it's the highest I can conscientiously charge for a beer. Yeah. I wanted to say something about the. Uh, um, kind of the evolvement of Imperial Stout in the United States. The first one I ever tasted was Grant's uh, Imperial Stout out of Yakima, Washington. Uh, Grant's, uh, Burt Grant was um, a real pioneer in craft brewing. He opened the first craft brewery in Washington State in, I believe, 1982. Uh, At the time, I think Anchor and Sierra Nevada and, the, and Boulder, I think, might have been in business then, but is that a... Yeah, and Hopland was in business Yeah, then. that's right, Hopland, uh, which is now Ukiah Brewing Company, but very few, and so Bert was a pioneer. Uh, he had already been in the business for a long time. He had worked for Pabst and everything, Scotsman, and um, one, one of the stories, I'll, I'll digress a little bit, but one of the stories that I always liked about Bert was back in 1982, I mean, there were no hoppy beers out there. I mean, anybody who was fortunate enough to get uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, uh, you could have one there. And so Bert um, 
brewed his own Scottish ale that was really hoppy, but they know he'd always carry around a vial of hop oil in his pocket. And so in, when he'd have a beer, he'd pull this thing out and dump it in there, kind of like people use hot sauce uh, just to accentuate the flavor. But anyway, uh, he came out with the first imperial stout, uh, imperial stout that I ever saw in the United States. He called it Russian Imperial Stout, and it was 7.2%, and that was a big beer in 1982. So look how things have evolved over time. Well, thank you very much, guys. We've reached our hour, and uh, there's still another 15 minutes downstairs. Uh, it was really great. We really appreciate it. And take care. Thank you for listening to Craft Beer Radio's 2010 coverage of Savor, an American craft beer and food experience. To learn more about Savor, please go to savorcraftbeer.com. To listen to more salons, interviews, and other content from Craft Beer Radio, please go to craftbeerradio.com. You can contact us on Twitter at at craftbeerradio or via email at beer at craftbeerradio.com. <laughs>